Section 12 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chateaubriand, Part 2. Chateaubriand was most graciously received by the Tsar Alexander and by Metternich, the latter at that time in the height of his power and glory. Alexander flattered Chateaubriand as a hero of humanity and a religious philosopher while Metternich received him as the apostle of conservatism. The particular subject which occupied the attention of the Congress was whether the great powers should intervene in the internal affairs of Spain, then agitated by revolution. King Ferdinand, who was restored to his throne after the forced abdication of Joseph Bonaparte, had broken the Constitution of 1812, which he had sworn to defend, and outraged his subjects by cruelties equalled only by those of that other Bourbon who reigned at Naples. In consequence, his subjects had rebelled and sought to secure their liberties. This rebellion disturbed all Europe, and the great powers, with the exception of England, ruled virtually by Canning, the foreign minister, resolved on an armed intervention to suppress the popular revolution. Chateaubriand used all his influence in favor of intervention, and so did Montmorency. They even exceeded the instructions of the king and Villel, the prime minister, who wished to avoid a war with Spain. They acted as the representatives of the Holy Alliance rather than as ambassadors of France. The Congress committed Russia, Austria, and Prussia to hostile interference, in case the king of France should be driven into war, a course which Wellington disapproved and which he urged Louis the Eighteenth to refrain from. In consequence, the French king temporized, dreading either to resist or to submit to the ascendancy of Russia, and dissatisfied with the course his negotiators had taken at the Congress, especially his Minister of Foreign Affairs, on whom the responsibility lay. Montmorency accordingly resigned, and Chateaubriand took his place, in consequence of which a coolness sprung up between the two friends who at the Congress had equally advocated the same policy. The discussions which ensued in the chambers, whether or not France should embark in a war with Spain, in other words, whether she should interfere with the domestic affairs of a foreign and independent nation, were the occasion of the first serious split among the statesmen of France at this time. There was a party for war and a party against it. At the head of the latter were men who afterward became distinguished. There were bitter denunciations of the ministers, but the war party headed by Chateaubriand prevailed, and the French ambassador was recalled from Madrid, although war was not yet formally declared. In the Chamber of Peers, Talleyrand used his influence against the invasion of Spain, foretelling the evils which would ultimately result, even as he had cautioned Napoleon against the same thing. He told the Chamber that although the proposed invasion would probably be successful, it would be a great mistake. M. Mollet, afterward so eminent as an orator, took the side of Talleyrand. "'Where are we going?' said he. "'We are going to Madrid. Alas, we have been there already.' Will a revolution cease when the independence of the people who are suffering from it is threatened? Have we not the example of the French Revolution, which was invincible when its cause became identical with that of our independence? This man, exclaimed the king, confirms me in the system of Monsieur de Villel, to temporize and avoid the war if it be possible. Chateaubriand replied in an elaborate speech in favor of the war. From his standpoint, his speech was masterly and unanswerable. It was a grand consecutive argument, solid logic without sentimentalism. 
while he admitted that according to the principles laid down by the great writers on international war intervention could not generally be defended he yet maintained that there were exceptions to the rule and this was one of them that the national safety was jeopardized by the spanish revolution that england herself had intervened in the french revolution that all the interests of france were compromised by the successes of the spanish revolutionists that a moral contagion was spreading even among the troops themselves in fact that there was no security for the throne or for the cause of religion and of public order unless the armies of france should restore ferdinand then a virtual prisoner in his own palace to the government he had inherited the war was decided upon and the duke of anglomé nephew of the king was sent across the pyrenees with one hundred thousand troops to put down the innumerable factions and reseat ferdinand the duke was assisted of course by all the royalists of spain by all the clergy and by all conservative parties and the conquest of the kingdom was comparatively easy the republican chiefs were taken and hanged including diego the ablest of them all ferdinand delivered by foreign armies remounted his throne forgot all his pledges and reigned on the most despotic principles committing the most atrocious cruelties the successful general returned to france with great eclat while the government was pushed every day by the triumphant royalists into increased severity into measures which logically led under charles the tenth to his expulsion from the throne and the final defeat of the principle of the legitimacy itself another great step toward republican institutions which were finally destined to triumph among the extreme measures was the septennial bill which passed both houses against the protest of liberal members some of whom afterward became famous such as general foy general sebastini dupont de lourdes casimir perrier lafitte langevinay this law was a coup d'etat against electoral opinions and representative government it gave the king and his government the advantage of fixing for seven years longer the majority which was secured by the elections of eighteen twenty two and of closing the chamber against the modification of public opinions villel and chateaubriand were the authors of this act another bill was proposed by villel not so objectionable which was to reduce the interest on the loans contracted by the state in other words to borrow money at less interest and pay off the old debts a salutary financial measure adopted in england and later by the united states after the civil war but this measure was bitterly opposed by the clergy who looked upon it as a reduction of their incomes here chateaubriand virtually abandoned the government in his uniform support of the temporalities of the church and the measure failed which so deeply exasperated both the king and the prime minister that chateaubriand was dismissed from his office as minister of foreign affairs the fallen minister angrily resented his disgrace and thenceforward secretly took part against the government embarrassing it by his articles in the journals of the day he did not renounce his conservative opinions but he became the personal enemy of villel chateaubriand had no magnanimity he retired to nurse his resentments in the society of madame recamier with whom he had formed a friendship difficult to be distinguished from love he had always been her devoted admirer when she reigned a queen of society in the fashionable salons of paris and continued his intimacy with her until his death daily did he when a broken old man make his accustomed visit to her modest apartments in the convent of st joseph and give vent to his melancholy and morbid feelings he regarded himself as the most injured man in france 
he became discontented with the crown and even with the aristocracy on the day of his retirement from the ministry the intelligence of the royalist party followed him in opposition to the government whose faults he had encouraged and shared the journal des debats the most influential newspaper in france deserted Villel, and from this defection may be dated says lamartine all those enmities against the government of the restoration which collected in one work of aggression the most contradictory ideas which alienated public opinion which exasperated the government and pushed it on from excesses to insanity irritated the tribune blindfolded the elections and finished by changing five years afterward the opposition of nineteen votes hostile to the bourbons into a heterogeneous but formidable majority in presence of which the monarchy had only the choice left between a humiliating resignation and a mortal coup d'etat chateaubriand now disappears from the field of history as one of its great figures he lived henceforth in retirement but bitter in his opposition to the government of which he had been the virtual head contributing largely to the journal des debats of which he was the life and by which he was supported in the next reign he refused the office of minister of public instruction as derogatory to his dignity but accepted the post of ambassador to rome a sort of honorable exile but he was an unhappy and disappointed man he had taken the wrong side in politics and probably saw his errors his genius if it had been directed to secure constitutional liberty would have made him a national idol for he lived to see the dethronement of louis philippe in eighteen forty eight but like castlereagh in england he threw his suburb talents in with the sinking cause of absolutism and was after all a political failure he lives only as a literary man one of the most eloquent poets of his day one of the lights of that splendid constellation of literary geniuses that arose on the fall of napoleon soon after the retirement of chateaubriand louis the eighteenth himself died at an advanced age having contrived to preserve his throne by moderation and honesty in his latter days he was exceedingly infirm in body but preserved his intellectual faculties to the last he was a lonely old man even while surrounded by a splendid court he wanted somebody to love at least to cheer him in his isolation for he had no peace in his family deeply as he was attached to its members he himself had discovered the virtues and disinterestedness of his minister de cannes and when his family and ministers drove away this favorite the king was devoted to him even in disgrace and made him his companion still later he found a substitute in madame du Caillou, one of those interesting and accomplished women peculiar to france she was not ambitious of ruling the king as her aunt madame de maintenon was of governing louis the fourteenth and her virtue was unimpeachable she wrote to the king letters twice a day but visited him only once a week she was the tool of a cabal rather than the leader of a court but her influence was healthy ennobling and religious louis the eighteenth was not what would be called a religious man he performed his religious duties regularly but in a perfunctory manner he was not however a hypocrite or a pharisee but was simply indifferent to religious dogmas and secretly adverse to the society of priests when he was dying it was with great difficulty that he could be made to receive extreme unction he died without pain recommending to his brother who was to succeed him to observe the charter of french liberties yet fearing that his blind bigotry would be the ruin of the family and the throne as events proved 
the last things to which the dying king clung were pomps and ceremonies concealing even from courtiers his failing strength and going through the mockery of dress and court etiquette to almost the very day of his death in eighteen twenty four the comte d'artois now charles x ascended the throne with the usual promises to respect the liberties of the nation which his brother had conscientiously maintained unfortunately charles's intellect was weak and his conscience perverted he was a narrow-minded bigoted sovereign ruled by priests and ultra-royalists who magnified his prerogatives appealed to his prejudices and flattered his vanity he was not cruel and bloodthirsty he was even kind and amiable but he was a fool who could not comprehend the conditions by which only he could reign in safety who could not understand the spirit of the times or appreciate the difficulties with which he had to contend what was to be expected of such a monarch but continual blunders encroachments and follies verging upon crimes the nation cared nothing for his hunting parties his pleasures and his attachment to medieval ceremonies but it did care for its own rights and liberties purchased so dearly and guarded so zealously and when these were gradually attacked by a man who felt himself to be delegated from god with unlimited powers to rule not according to laws but according to his caprices and royal will then the ferment began first in the legislative assemblies then extending to journalists who controlled public opinion and finally to the discontented enraged and disappointed people the throne was undermined and there was no power in france to prevent the inevitable catastrophe in russia prussia and austria an overwhelming army bound together by the mechanism which absolutism for centuries had perfected could repress disorder but in a country where the army was comparatively small enlightened by the ideas of the revolution and fraternizing with the people this was not possible a napoleon with devoted and disciplined troops might have crushed his foes and reigned supreme but a weak and foolish monarch with a disaffected and scattered army with ministers who provoked all the hatreds and violent passions of legislators editors and people alike was powerless to resist or overcome the short reign of charles x was not marked by a single event of historical importance except the conquest of algiers and that was undertaken by the government to gain military eclat in other words popularity and this at the very time it was imposing restrictions on the press there were during this reign no reforms no public improvements no measures of relief for the poor no stimulus to new industries no public encouragement of art or literature no triumphs of architectural skill nothing to record but the strife of political parties and a systematic encroachment by the government on electoral rights on legislative freedom on the liberty of the press there was a senseless return to medieval superstitions and cruelties all to please the most narrow and intolerant class of men who ever traded on the exploded traditions of the past the jesuits returned to promulgate their sophistries and to impose their despotic yoke the halls of justice were presided over by the tools of arbitrary power great offices were given to the most obsequious slaves of royalty without regard to abilities or fitness there was not indeed the tyranny of spain or naples or austria but everything indicated a movement toward it those six years which comprised the reign of charles x were a period of reaction a return to the middle ages in both state and church a withering blast on all noble aspirations even the prime minister Villel, a legitimist and an ultra royalist was too liberal for the king and he was dismissed to make room for martinoc and he again for polignoc who had neither foresight nor prudence nor ability 
the generals of the republic and of the empire were removed from active service an indemnity of a thousand millions was given by an obsequious legislature to the men who had emigrated during the revolution a generous thing to do but a premium on cowardice and want of patriotism a base concession was made to the sacerdotal party by making it a capital offense to profane the sacred vessels of the churches or the consecrated wafer thus putting the power of life and death into the hands of the clergy not for crimes against society but for an insult to the religion of the middle ages but the laws passed against the press were the most irritating of all the press had become a power which it was dangerous to trifle with the one thing in modern times which affords the greatest protection to liberty which is most hated by despots and valued by enlightened minds a universal clamor was raised against this return to barbarism this extinction of light in favor of darkness this discarding of the national reason royalists and liberals alike denounced this culminating act of high treason against the majesty of the human mind this death-blow to civilization chateaubriand royer collard dupont de lure even le bourdonnais predicted its fatal consequences and their impassioned eloquence from the tribune became in a few days the public opinion of the nation and the king in his infatuation saw no remedy for his increasing unpopularity but in dissolving the chamber of deputies and ordering a new election the blindest thing he could possibly do it was now seen that he was determined to rule in utter defiance of the charter he had sworn to defend and on the principles of undisguised absolutism all parties now coalesced against the king and his ministers the king then began to tamper with the military in order to establish by violence the old regime it was found difficult to fill ministerial appointments as everybody felt that the ship of state was drifting upon the rocks the king even determined to dissolve the new chamber of deputies before it met the elections having pronounced emphatically against his government at last the passions of the people became excited and daily increased in violence then came resistance to the officers of the law then riots then barricades then the occupation of the tuileries then ineffectual attempts of the military to preserve order and restrain the violence of the people marshal mamon with only twelve thousand troops was powerless against a great city in arms the king thinking it was only an emuet to be easily put down withdrew to st cloud and there he spent his time in playing whist as nero fiddled over burning rome until at last aroused by the vengeance of the whole nation he made his escape to england to rust in the old palace of the kings of scotland and to meditate over his kingly follies as napoleon meditated over his mistakes in the island of st helena thus closed the third act in the mighty drama which france played for one hundred years the first act revealing the passions of the revolution the second the abominations of military despotism the third the reaction toward the absolutism of the old regime and its final downfall two more acts are to be presented the perfidy and selfishness of louis philippe and the usurpation of louis napoleon but these must be deferred until in our course of lectures we have considered the reaction of liberal sentiments in england during the ministries of castlereagh canning and lord liverpool when the tories resigned as metternich did in vienna yet the reign of the bourbons while undistinguished by great events was not fruitless in great men on the fall of napoleon a crowd of authors editors orators and statesmen issued from their retreats and attracted notice by the brilliancy of their writings and speeches crushed or banished by the iron despotism of napoleon who hated literary genius they now became a new power in france not to propagate infidel sentiments and revolutionary theories but to awaken the nation to a sense of intellectual dignity 
and to maturer views of government to give a new impulse to literature art and science and to show how impossible it is to extinguish the fires of liberty when once kindled in the breasts of patriots or to put a stop to the progress of the human mind among an excitable intelligent though fickle people craving with passionate earnestness both popular rights and constitutional government in accordance with those laws of progress which form the basis of true civilization there was count joseph de maistre a royalist indeed but who propounded great truths mixed with great paradoxes believing all he said seeking to restore the authority of divine revelation in a world distracted by skepticism grand and eloquent in style and astonishing the infidels as much as he charmed the religious associated with him in friendship and in letters was the abbe de lamenay a young priest of brittany brought up amid its wilds in silent reverence and awe yet with the passions of a revolutionary order logical as Bousset, invoking young men not to the worship of medieval dogmas but to the shrine of reason allied with faith of another school was cousin the modern plato combating the materialism of the eighteenth century with mystic eloquence and drawing around him in his chair of philosophy at the sorbonne a crowd of enthusiastic young men which reminded one of abelard among his pupils in the infant university of paris cousin elevated the soul while he intoxicated the mind and created a spirit of inquiry which was felt wherever philosophy was recognized as one of the most ennobling studies that can dignify the human intellect in history both guizot and thiers had already become distinguished before they were engrossed in politics augustine thierry described with romantic fascination the exploits of the normans michaud brought out his crusades Barante his chronicles, Sismondi his Italian republics, Michelet his lively conception of France in the Middle Ages, Capefigue the life of Louis the Fourteenth, and Lamartine his poetical paintings of the Girondists. All these masterpieces gave a new interest to historical studies, infusing into history life and originality, not as a barren collection of annals and names in which pedantry passes for learning and uninteresting details for accuracy and scholarship in that inglorious period more first-class histories were produced in france than have appeared in england during the long reign of queen victoria where only three or four historians have reached the level of any one of those i have mentioned in genius or eloquence Another set of men created journalism as the expression of public opinion, and as a lever to overturn an obstinate despotism built upon the superstitions and dogmas of the Middle Ages. A few young men, almost unknown to fame, with remorseless logic and fiery eloquence overturned a throne, and established the press as a power that proved irresistible, driving the priests of absolutism back into the shadows of eternal night, and making reason the guide and glory of mankind. Among these were the disappointed and embittered Chateaubriand, who almost redeemed his devotion to the royal cause by those elegant essays which recalled the eloquence of his early life. Viamain wrote for the Moniteur, Royer Collard and Guizot for the Courier. With all the haughtiness and disdain which marked the doctrinaire or constitutional school, Etienne and Pages for the Constitutionnel, ridiculing the excesses of the ultra-royalists, the pretensions of the clergy and the follies of the court de genois for the gazette de france and tears for the national in the realm of science arago explored the wonders of the heavens and cuvier penetrated the secrets of the earth 
In poetry, only two names are prominent, De Lille and Beranger, but the French are not a poetical nation. Most of the great writers of France wrote in prose, and for style they have never been surpassed. If the poets were few after the Restoration, the novelists were many, with transcendent excellences and transcendent faults, reaching the heart by their pathos, insulting the reason by their exaggerations, captivating the imagination while shocking the moral sense, painting manners and dissecting passions with powerful, acute, and vivid touch. Such were Victor Hugo, Eugene Sue, and Alexandre Dumas, whose creations interested all classes alike, not merely in France, but throughout the world. The dignity of intellect amid political degradation was never more strikingly displayed than by those orators who arose during the reign of the Bourbons. The intrepid Manuel, uttering his protests against royal encroachments, in a chamber of royalists all heated by passions and prejudices. Lanay and de Sir, pathetic and patriotic. Guizot, de Broglie, and de Saint-Hilaire, learned and profound. Royer collared, religious, disdainful, majestic general foy disinterested and incorruptible lafitte the banker benjamin constant the philosopher barrier the lawyer chateaubriand the poet most eloquent of all these and a host of others some liberal some conservative all able showed that genius was not extinguished amid all the attempts of absolutism to suppress it it is true that none of these orators arose to supreme power and that they were not equal to mirabeau and other great lights in the revolutionary period they were comparatively inexperienced in parliamentary business and were watched and fettered by a hostile government and could not give full scope to their indignant eloquence without personal peril nor did momentous questions of reform come before them for debate as was the case in england during the agitation on the reform bill they did little more than show the spirit that was in them which under more favorable circumstances would arouse the nation there was one more power which should be mentioned in connection with that period of torpor and reaction and that was the influence of salons to these all the bright intellects of paris resorted and gave full vent to their opinions artists scholars statesmen journalists men of science and brilliant women in short whoever was distinguished in any particular sphere and these composed what is called society, a tremendous lever in fashionable life. In the salons of Madame de Stael, of the Duchess de Dora, of the Duchesse de Broglie, of Madame de Saint-Hilaire, and of Madame de Montcalm, all parties were represented, and all subjects were freely discussed. Here Saint-Beuve discoursed with those whom he was afterward to criticize. Here Talleyrand uttered his concise and emphatic sentences. Here Lafayette won hearts by his courteous manners and amiable disposition. Here Guizot prepared himself for the tribune and the press. Here Villemain, with the proud indifference, broached his careless skepticism. Here Montlossier blended aristocratical paradoxes with democratic theories. All these great men, and a host of others, Beranger, Constant, Etienne, Lamartine, Pasquier, Monnier, Molle, De Neuville, Lanay, Barante, Cousin, Sismondi, freely exchanged opinions, and rested from their labors, a group of geniuses worth more than armies in the great contests between liberty and absolutism. And here it may be said that these kings and queens of society represented not material interests, 
not commerce not manufactures not stocks not capital not railways not trade not industrial exhibitions not armies and navies but ideas those invisible agencies which shake thrones and make revolutions and lift the soul above that which is transient to that which is permanent to religion to philosophy to art to poetry to the glories of home to the certitudes of friendship to the benedictions of heaven which may exist in all their benign beauty and power whatever be the form of government or the inequality of condition in cottage or palace in plenty or in want among foes or friends creating that sublime rest where men may prepare themselves for a future and imperishable existence such was the other side of france during the reign of the bourbons the lights which burst through the gloomy shades of tyranny and superstition to alleviate sorrows and disappointed hopes the resurrection of intellect from the grave of despair authorities the history of the restoration by lamartine is the most interesting work i have read on the subject but he is not regarded as a high authority talleyrand's memoirs memoirs de chateaubriand la crete Alison, Biographie Universelle, Memoirs de Louis XVIII, Fief, Mackenzie's History of the Nineteenth Century, all are interesting and worthy of perusal. End of section 12